We can turn back to the passage we read in John chapter 1. And I'd like us to sing together about verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The verses that we read there, verses 1 to 18, are normally regarded as the prologue to John's Gospel. Usually, but not always, but usually a prologue is the last section of a book that's written. Because its purpose is to summarize what's going to appear later on in the book. So it's possible for us to just look at this summary and then take the various details about it and see how John expands them in the remaining chapters of his gospel. Of course, when John wrote his gospel, uh, 60 years have passed since the life, the stories that he mentions took place. So it's not only a factual account of what happened, but it's also, from a human point of view, a set of reminiscences that John is recalling. And often when we look back on life um, we highlight the important features that may have taken place at a particular time John is highlighting or summarizing uh, the most amazing three years of his unique life I mean John was a highly privileged individual He was called to be an apostle, one of the uh, founders of the Christian church. By the time he writes this gospel, he is no longer living in in Israel, but as far as church history tells us, he's now living in Ephesus. So he has been taken throughout the world in, in the task of setting up uh, the kingdom of Jesus and of seeing Jesus work through him to do incredible things in all the places that he had been in his over 60 years of discipleship. But the years that stayed in his memory were the three years that he spent with Jesus. And indeed, towards the end of his gospel, he tells us where the details that he records came from. Because at the end of chapter 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs, 
in the presence of his disciples. So John is writing about uh, the things that he and the other disciples saw. And they want to pass on to us uh, those details. Obviously, John didn't see what he mentions in the first five verses. Because that's describing life before John himself was born. But from verse 6 onwards, we have his personal experience. Because we know that the Apostle John was a disciple of John the Baptist. And he mentions John the Baptist briefly there in verses 6 to 8. And of course, that must have been an interesting time as well, mustn't it? Because uh, John the Baptist is the forerunner, the forerunner of the Messiah. And he was telling this message that he's about to come. That the one that they had looked for uh, for centuries in the nation of Israel, uh, the message of John was that the light is about to arrive. And of course, when he was saying that the light is about to arrive, he was indicating that the darkness was about to end. That the, the years and the centuries in which the Savior had not come, and although there was light, as it were, in the distance, uh, at some stage he would come, but John the Baptist said, he's about to arrive. And John the Apostle, as we know, was gripped by that. The Lord had worked in his heart, and this was John's priority in life, waiting for the Messiah to appear. And when he did appear, John mentions two consequences of that arrival. Uh, the, the first consequence, we could say, is mentioned in verse 14, where he says, we have seen his glory. When we saw the Messiah, says John, we just didn't see an ordinary person. We saw someone who was full of glory. And the glory that he had was uh, divine glory. And he, he showed that glory in lots of different ways, uh, such as miracles, because we're told by John in chapter 2, uh, about the wedding in Cana that that was where Jesus first showed his glory and he showed his glory in other ways as well and that's what John writes about in his gospel so that means that even on the cross uh, the glory of God uh, was revealed so that's one of the features that John recalls from these three years of, uh, of Jesus' public ministry that there was given to him this amazing privilege of seeing uh, the glory of Jesus on display. But the other feature that he mentions is the one that's mentioned in verse 12. And that is that others realized who Jesus was. Although Jesus came to his, there in verse 11, he came to his own things, because uh, the word there doesn't mean people. He came to his own possessions, we might say. And 
One would expect when somebody comes to their own things that the people who are living there would recognize the owner. But we know that when he came to his own things, his own people did not receive him. In the main, the Jews rejected him. But John points out, and we can imagine him as he uh, writes these words, and he looks back to 60 years ago, um, to scenes that have long since gone, and to faces that in a sense are only memories, but he remembers that they believed in Jesus. And I'm sure as he sat there in Ephesus or whatever he wrote the gospel, and he recalled all these people coming to know Jesus, that his heart was warmed even by the mere memory of their embracing the Savior. So I just want us to think briefly about this verse this second aspect of the three years that John recalls about people who received Jesus and believed in his name and who were given the right to become children of God. The first thing I want us to think briefly about is who was received who is Jesus? Well, there's lots of things that John even says about him here in this first set of verses of his gospel. For example, he tells us there in, in verse 3 that he is the creator of everything. He's, he's the son of God. He's the creator of everything. And he, as it were, keeps the whole universe in existence. And that would be uh, a wonderful feature of Jesus to focus on. But I don't want us really to think about that one just now. Instead, there's three things, I think, that do come out from this passage about Jesus that uh, we can might think about at this moment. And the first thing is his humility. And his humility is seen there in verse 14. As the word became flesh. Now, we may look at that and just think, well, all that John is saying is that the word became human. And, of course, he is saying that. But the, the word that's translated flesh means humanity at its lowest. I mean, how would we expect Jesus to appear? Uh, the Son of God. What would he look like when he arrived? What kind of thing would he do to create an impression? We know when important people come to our locality that it's inevitable that they will be preceded by something designed to make an impression and in a sense there's, there's nothing wrong with that but what did Jesus do when he came well he became flesh no one when he arrived 
thought there was anything important about it. When he was born, we know as our catechism tells us, he was born in a low condition. He was at the bottom, we might say, of the pile. He hasn't even got a space, a nice space, in which to be born. He is born into this world even as he arrived as an outcast where no one has got any time for him. We might not be surprised that they don't have time for one another, but when the most important person there is, the eternal God, becomes flesh among us, we would assume that those who are in the vicinity would at least take a glance. But they didn't, apart from the shepherds who the angels gave a special message to. But there he is, Jesus the humble one. And John wants us to notice that. And his life afterwards is marked by humility. And he shows that in all kinds of ways. He he described his own mission as, I am among you as one who serves. That his entire life was spent serving. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Uh, John, I'm sure, was there when Jesus began his public ministry, when he was baptized by John the Baptist. And we can picture the, the, the line, the queue, waiting to be baptized by John, because we're told the whole countryside went out to him. Daily there might be uh, hundreds being baptized by John the Baptist as they're all preparing for the arrival of the Messiah. And one day Jesus joins the line. I mean, who's in this queue? If we were standing there looking at this procession of people coming up to John the Baptist to be um, baptized by him, and someone said to us, who are these? the answer that would be given because of what John said is that they are sinners that they are professing that they want to depart from their sins and so on and there's Jesus and humbly he joins this queue and there he is numbered with the transgressors although he has never committed one sin and there's nothing wrong in his life. But everybody else in that line, they're only carrying their own sins. As Jesus joins the line, he's not carrying any personal sins of his own, but he's carrying all the sins of his people. That's what John the Baptist has said about him, didn't he, when he pointed him out to, to Andrew and to John. 
Behold the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. He didn't say to him, Behold who will take away. But at that moment as John pointed to him, as Jesus was walking somewhere nearby, he said at that moment he's got a burden on his shoulders and he's going to carry it to the place where it will be taken away. So there he joins this line composed of sinners. And, you know, he wasn't ashamed to do so. He could have said to them, I'm different from all of you. But he didn't. And as we look at him in the line, where is he in the line? Does he push himself forward to the front to make an impression? Well, when we read the accounts of his baptism, we discover he's last in the line. And when all the others have been baptized, John deals with Jesus. Almost as if Jesus was saying, I'm at the back of the queue because I'm carrying more sins than the ones in front of me. And John wants us to think that Jesus became flesh. And of course his humility didn't stop there. Nor did it stop with service. Nor did it stop with washing his disciples' feet. But he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And if he was numbered with the transgressors at his baptism, then he's also numbered with them at Calvary. And there, he's dealing with our sins. A proud man couldn't take one sin away. The most humble of men took away all the sins of his people. But he did that because he went down. And John wants us to focus on that. My three most wonderful years, says John, was spent watching a man making himself lower and lower until he went down to the point of death. So that's one thing we can say about him. But no, Jesus came with a message. And I suspect that's why he's called the Word there in the first verses when we say a word we pass on a message if we don't use words people don't know what we think they don't know who we are in the beginning was we could say the message and he was with God and he was God He's God's spokesperson. 
He's coming to say something. And if his life was marked by humility, his message was marked by hope. He spoke about going to the cross. If anybody else had ever spoken about going to the cross, that's a message of despair. Anybody else who ever went to a cross after being in court and so on, well, that was the end of it. In a short time they would be dead, and that's it. But when Jesus spoke about going to the cross, he never spoke about it as the end. Indeed, he regarded going to the cross as the door into something incredible. Not just as a door into something incredible for us, but also into something incredible for him. Because he was going to come out of death on the other side of it on the third day. And when he came out of death, what hope he brought into the world. I mean, sadly, one of the words that we use that has changed its meaning drastically is the word hope. We have turned it into some kind of vague thing. I hope to do this, or I hope to do that. And whether we do it or not may not matter too much. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it's never in that sense. The hope that Jesus came to give to us through his message and through his actions on the cross and subsequently is guaranteed events in the future. And in his gospel he speaks about what he can provide. As he's, for example, shortly before he goes to the cross, what words of hope does he have? Well, how about in my father's house are many rooms? If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That, these are not the words of someone who regards the cross as the end. These are the words of someone who regards the cross as something he has to go through in order to ensure that his disciples and all others who trust in him are going to be with him in his father's house forever and ever. And what a wonderful message of hope Jesus has. He brings light into a future that we cannot see. Without his words, we don't know the future. But through his words, we can look up to his ascension, to his glorification, to his return, to his creating the new heavens and the new earth, and all these blessings that he's going to bring about in the future and it brings light into our lives. 
And there's a certain sense in which we should not speak about the future as a mystery. Because we've been told what's going to happen. And Jesus himself will ensure that it does. And the third thing that we can say about him, in addition to him being humble and having a message of hope, is that he brought his message right into the lives of people. And in this gospel we have accounts of Jesus' repeated occasions where he stressed to individuals and to groups and sometimes to large groups that through him they could have certainty as they faced the future. He sought them. And it's marvelous to go through this gospel and read about Jesus seeking sinners. He was a seeking Savior. That's why he came. He came to his own things to find people who were lost. And as John himself indicates, some of them received him and received him gladly. What do you think of Jesus? What do you think of his humility? What do you think of his message of hope? What do you think of someone who seeks sinners? Who actually seeks the opposite of himself? And gives to them the gospel and offers to them all the blessings connected to that, which we'll think about in a minute. So that's the one who was received. Secondly, what does it mean to receive him? In a sense, John tells us, he says there in the second clause in verse 12, who believed in his name. So receiving is an expression of believing. But there's many other aspects to believing apart from receiving. There's a certain sense in which we could say that as far as this context is concerned, although we can use the word in lots of scenarios, but as far as this context is concerned, the word receive is the initial act of faith, isn't it? I mean, that's what John is highlighting. It doesn't doesn't mean that they continually received him. But at a certain stage in their life, they responded to what they heard and received Jesus. So what does this aspect of faith point to? Well, faith is always based on information. And in this aspect context here is based on information about two people and the two people are one is Jesus and information about him and the other one is the person believing and information he discovers about himself the information that is conveyed to him about Jesus 
is that he's the saviour. That's why he came into the world, to save sinners. And the information that the person discovers about himself is that he or she is a sinner. And those two details are the most important information we can ever discover. There's lots of things in life that are worth discovering. But there's nothing worth more than discovering who Jesus is and discovering who we are. We've already thought about briefly who Jesus is. But what does it mean to discover you're a sinner? After all, none of us are liable to say we're perfect. To describe, to discover that we are sinners means that we don't estimate ourselves through what other people think about us. Rather, we estimate ourselves regarding what God thinks of us. What other people think about us may be accurate or maybe not. And in a certain sense, in comparison to what God thinks about us, worrying about what other people think about us is pointless. But to discover that God regards me as a sinner, that God regards me as imperfect, that God regards me as someone who has broken his law, that God regards me as someone who snubbed his glory, that God regards me as someone who does not put God first, but puts something else, usually myself, first. That's what it is to be a sinner. A sinner's got, primarily, it's not got to do with our outward behavior, although in a sense that is important. But sin is in the heart. It is possible, but very unlikely, but it is possible to go through life and never say anything wrong, as far as listeners are concerned. And it may be possible to go through life and never do any actions that somebody else can say is wrong. But the only people looking at that are people who look on the outside. What matters is what God sees in our heart. And even if we did have such a kind of lifestyle that nobody could point the finger at, God can point his finger. And God can point to our numerous sins inside us. And he can highlight the sins that we're aware of, but he's also fully aware of the sins that we're not aware of. God knows them all. And when we receive Jesus, we receive him as sinners. It's sinners that value a Savior. And it's those who know they're sinners to some extent because it's not possible uh, before our conversion to fully realize how sinful we are. 
whatever knowledge we have of ourselves before conversion it's, it's not to be compared to what we discover about ourselves afterwards but as sinners we receive the Savior and that means that faith in this initial stage involves confidence and contrition we are confident about the Savior and we are contrite about ourselves and there's no contradiction between them it's contrite sinners that are embraced by the Savior and they come to him and whatever words they use but saying to him I'm sorry I'm really sorry for my sins but I am so glad that you came into this world and lived such a humble life and that your humble life took you to the cross and that on that journey you were carrying my sins and you carried them to the cross and when you carried them there they were brought to a place where nobody else can find them. And you paid the penalty for my sin. And as I look at you, I want to receive you. And he comes, receiving into our heart. He comes into our lives renews us, changes us, sanctifies us, whatever word we want to use. He makes us new. And John saw this happening with his own eyes. He saw it happening to a woman outside Syker as she and Jesus seemed to be having a discussion. And John watched that woman discover life, living water and there are many others that John recalled and there must be surely in this reception of Jesus a sense of wonder that he's going to save me who, don't, who doesn't deserve anything that he the son of God came down to the cross for me and while this wonder will grow because faith after conversion will grow but there must be a sense of awe as we find ourselves face to face with Jesus as it were embracing him receiving him and observing his delight to come into our lives and I suppose we should ask ourselves have we received him is Jesus in your life If not, why not? If he's not in your life, 
It's because you want something else to be there. But John is reminding us here that it's possible to receive Jesus. And even if others are rejecting him, as happened there in verse 11, even if others are rejecting him, it's no reason for us to reject him. That we can say to him, Lord, come into my heart. And the amazing thing is, he will. There must be lots of noises going up to heaven. And most of the noises that come up from earth to heaven must sound like screeches. But the ears of heaven are open for people asking to be forgiven. And when they pick up that sound, then we're told by Jesus himself that there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over each sinner that repents. So that's receiving him. And having done that, we discover he gives something to us. As John points out there in the second half of verse 12, he gave to all the ones who received him the right to become children of God. If John himself hadn't written it down, we might find that hard to believe. We've got the right to become children of God. That's telling us at least one thing, that those who are believers that their only suitable position is to be members of God's family. That they have no right to be anywhere else. But they do have a right to be members of his family. And as we think of this status, this rank, becoming children of God, what higher family could they be in? We are often curious when we meet somebody, perhaps for the first time, and we suspect we might know something about them. Uh, we want to ask them, who's your family? And if it turns out that we know the family, then there's a special bond there, even if we haven't met the person before. But what's a membership of an earthly family in comparison to membership of God's family? We can't be in any higher family. We always get excited, or at least some of us get excited whenever there's a royal wedding and a commoner, as they call them, becomes a member of the royal family. Well, in the ultimate royal family, it's only commoners that join it. But all of them, once they come into this royal family, 
they are given the highest rank. There's no grades among the children of God. There's not some who are on a higher shelf in comparison to others. It's not as if we are down on the lower shelf and up there on the higher shelf are the apostles. They're not any more members of the family than anybody else who believes in Jesus. And we are given this marvelous position of being heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I don't know if you ever let that phrase run slow through your mind. We are an heir of God and joint heirs with Jesus. I mean, God is not going to die, but he is going to share his inheritance with us. And God's inheritance is everything. God owns everything. And the astonishing thing is that those who receive Jesus, they become heirs of God. I mean, Paul reminded the Romans, didn't he, when he said to them, and remember who they were, most of them were slaves. And Paul says to them, all things are yours. What things? Life, death, things present, things to come. All of it is yours. He's just saying to them, because you are heirs of God, children of God, the future is yours. The world to come the new heavens and the new earth. Extraordinary possessions. And we can never lose them. Many a person in life loses their inheritance for various reasons. But God will never lose his. And he will never disinherit his children. What he has for them will be theirs, and that forever. They've got a right to it. He says that. And when we get to heaven, it's our rightful place. Because we have become children of God through believing in Jesus. And as we close, just a couple of things about this manner of receiving. We receive him freely. There's no strings attached. He's offered to us. He offers himself. He doesn't say to us, make yourself better and then you can have me. Instead he says to us, come as you are. 
What's the point of trying to make ourselves better? We can't. Even if we were to try, it's pointless because we can't make ourselves better. And Jesus says to us, freely come. I think a lot of people find that hard to believe. And they assume that somehow or other they must try and get rid of some of their sins before they come to him. But there's no conditions. The offer comes to us, of course we'll be sorry for our sins, but that's an accompaniment to faith. We don't buy our way into God's family. It's all free. And we have to do it personally. I mean, we can imagine a lifeboat and people trying to get into it. And of course, the reports might say a group got into it. But the reality is they got into it one at a time. And Jesus is like a lifeboat. And he can take millions of sinners and save them. But all of them go in one at a time. They have to go in personally. I would love to believe on behalf of you. But I can't. Nobody can believe on behalf of you. You have to do it yourself. It has to be your personal response. And in addition to doing it, this reception being freely and personal, it's full. Jesus doesn't say to us, I'm giving you a quarter of myself at conversion and then you'll discover the remaining three quarters as life goes on. It is true that we'll discover new things as life goes on. But at the moment we believe in him for the first time, we get him. We get him. All that he is at that moment becomes ours. We receive a full saviour that will take the whole of this life and indeed the whole of eternity to discover how full he is. But he's all mine. Every believer can say that. And the last thing is we receive him permanently This is a life-changing decision. It changes our direction, where we're going. It changes our destination, where we'll arrive. It's permanent. So, just ask yourselves, as I ask myself,
have I made use of the freeness of the gospel? And do I have personal dealings with Jesus Christ? And have I realized that he doesn't give me part of himself, he gives me all of himself? And that when we receive him, we receive him forever. John and these others he describes in verse 12. Up in heaven tonight, I'm sure they recall the time they received Jesus. And as they do, their hearts are filled with gladness. And it would be wonderful if one day all of us join them. May God bless these thoughts to us, shall we pray? <clears throat> Lord, we give you thanks for the simplicity of the way of being converted. Forgive us for the way we so often complicate things and also sometimes invent things to us and give the impression that they are necessary. Lord, teach us that we can just go to Jesus, even though he's not in our physical presence, that he hears us, whether we speak with our lips or with our hearts, and he invites us to trust in him, to receive him, and when that happens, we become your children. What an amazing transaction that is. We pray, Lord, all of us, even now, if we haven't done it before, would be doing so as we think about what we, this verse says to us, that as many as received him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For his name's sake, amen. We'll conclude by singing from Psalm 119 in the Scottish Psalter at verse 57. We'll sing verses 57 to 60 and the tune is Belmont. Thou my sure portion art alone which I did choose, O Lord. I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word. Verses 57 to 60. Thy Amen.
seated for uh, a few minutes. All the intimations for this week are on the bulletin sheet, so I'm not going to read through many of them. I'll leave you to read through that yourself. There is uh, a youth fellowship tonight, and that's immediately after the service just now. That'll be at the Francis Street Manse for all the young folks of the congregation and any of their friends with them. They're very welcome to come to the youth fellowship this evening. Uh, the service is tomorrow, God willing, at 8 o'clock. There's the prayer meeting in the session room. There's a Gaelic service at uh, 11 a.m. That'll be in the seminary. And we expect to have Reverend Paul Murray for that service. And in the evening tomorrow evening to finish off the communion services at 7.30, that'll be an English service in the seminary also conducted by Reverend Dr. Malcolm McLean. Uh, there is to be a short prayer meeting after this service just now. And uh, we won't go to the door because of that. I want to, uh, you to please make this as efficient a transition as possible from now to the beginning of the prayer meeting without any undue delay uh, so that we don't spend too much time in between that. So uh, if you need to go out, please, if you're staying for the prayer meeting, just stay in if you can at all. If you need to check your car, please feel to do that. But um, we want to do this as quickly and efficiently as possible. So as quick a turnaround as possible, please. One of our own elders will be leading the uh, short prayer meeting. It'll just be a couple of prayers so it won't take very long. But please, if you can do the transition as efficiently as possible, that would be highly appreciated. Thank you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.